And Heather's going to bring that for us. And then Les is going to come up and speak to us. You don't need that. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he was trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his, the Lord his God, wave his hands over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in, the, in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to him, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he bought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, 
He got down from his chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? He asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them the talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them all the way in the house. He sent men away and they left. Then he went in and stood before his master Elijah. Where have you been, Gehazi? Elijah asked. Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elijah said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants or maidservants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elijah's presence and he was leprous, as white as snow. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Um, we've not in the middle of any kind of teaching series, so I had the freedom to pick any passage of the Bible to preach from. And this is where we've ended up with a bit of a random story from the Old Testament. I haven't heard a lot of Old Testament talks, I don't think, or at least not not ones that go off the major script of like Jonah and the whale and Noah and the ark and David and the giant and those kind of things. Um, and even in our Bible in 10 series, that's kind of like the, the kind of highlight um, stories that we go to. Um, some of the randomer ones I've heard, do you know about the one with Elisha, the same guy in this, where he calls down a pack of bears on some youths who pay him out for being bald? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, there's actually an interesting story about David. He actually after he's killed Goliath for some reason he goes to the hometown of Goliath and then he kind of, I don't know whether he was a bit mad at that point and he you know then has to escape because they realize that the murderer of our um, warrior is is there so um, there's these stories through the Old Testament but what I've realized in, in preparing this and, and thinking about why we would look at a passage like this is that it's the same God isn't it that is over all the Bible and he this, this will teach us. This will teach us a lot of things and remind us and encourage us of a lot of things. It's rich testimonies of God's faithfulness to us um, and people who show us what it means to keep living as God's people. So that's why we're looking at this passage today. The other reason is if you read the Jesus Storybook Bible with your kids, um, some, I know some of you do, this was a story that was in there that... I just kind of was reading with Sonny. So that was actually the reason that I picked this passage to read because I thought, oh, that's a cool story. How about I preach on that next time I get to preach? So anyway, let's pray that God would help us to understand what this story is all about. Our loving Father, we give you great thanks that we can be gathered this morning. Thank you for your word that speaks to us. Um, help us to uh, see it as accessible. Help us to find ways and and no ways that we can come to your word um, and hear it. Lord, help us to give it a higher place in our life. Help us now to understand this passage. Help us to understand who we are, who you are, and how all of your word points us to Jesus, our Saviour. 
So I pray that your spirit would speak to each of our hearts now and, and nourish us and encourage us to live faithfully and to put all our trust and hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever had one of those experiences where you're the one that just doesn't belong? You're the one in the crowd that doesn't belong there. You're the odd one out. One really stark moment for that for me, and I don't know if I've shared this story in a, in a talk before, but I was lining up at Ticketek before the days where you logged onto the computer, back in my university days, lining up at Ticketek in Lismore, wanting to get tickets for this band called Switchfoot. They were a band that, um, a Christian band, they were playing in Sydney. I was going about to go to Sydney. They weren't overly popular. They had heaps of tickets available. They had, um, they didn't sell the show out. It wasn't a real major, um, major concert. It was just something that I wanted to do. I'd lined up with a few mates from Sydney to go down to this concert. Anyhow, it was first thing on a Monday morning. I'd stayed over in Lismore that night and I just went down to Ticket Tech. It opens at nine o'clock. No big deal. Except it was the weekend after the final semi-finals of the NRL and it had just been decided over that weekend who was going to be playing in the grand final. And so, of course, there was swarms of people lined up at Ticket Tech to get tickets. It was going to be the West Tigers versus the North Queensland Cowboys game, both who hadn't done much grand finaling. I don't think the Cowboys had ever played in a grand final and I don't really care about the West Tigers. So that was mainly the crowd that I was in, these die-hard West Tigers supporters. Um, there was tattoos every... I shouldn't stereotype so much. But I seriously felt like the odd one out. Now, I've turned into a bit of a footy head since these days. That was 2005. But back then, I was a muso in a music degree at university. That's all I really cared about. So here I am lined up with a few people in front of me, but I had a pretty good spot in the line, tickets selling out fast, all these guys behind me, and I get up to the counter and I'm like, can I have four tickets to switch foot, please? And they were like, they like had to log out of whatever they were in and try to find it on the computer system. Meanwhile, the crowd was getting pretty unruly behind me. In October this year, it'll mark for me 20 years since I made a decision to become a Christian. That's a photo of some part of, is that Shelley Beach in Ballina? I was at a, up at a camp around there. I was a 12-year-old in Year 7, and I heard the gospel. And it really like was a conversion. It, it, I went there not understanding who Jesus was. I went away with my faith in Jesus to save me from my sin. And it was actually over a school holiday. So the October school holidays, a couple of weeks off school, returning to school, I had this strong sense that something had happened in me that made me someone that just didn't belong in the crowd anymore. All of a sudden, this, this change that had happened, that in some regard I just didn't belong in the crowds that I was hanging out with or the people that were around me. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, Peter describes this. He describes this experience as Christians, as the people that, that are 
set apart, that are different. I'll read it for you. He says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, the reality is that we are called out of darkness into his light. When we've given our lives over to Jesus, we have this new identity. We become the people that are here on this earth, but just don't belong. The verse straight after this, he goes on to say something else, but he starts it this way. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles... If your faith is in Jesus, that's who you are in this world. A a foreigner, exile. An older translation says an alien. You see, the implication of a new identity as a Christian is that our identity with this world is no longer. We're foreigners. We're the exiles. We're the aliens. We're the strangers here. So, now this book of two kings. Well, this book of two kings records a time in Israel's history where the whole nation was fracturing. It was, it was falling apart. The kings were turning their back on God and it was on a one-way path to destruction and to exile. Collectively, they'd turned their backs on God and they were turning to other gods. In our Bible in 10 series, we saw this right between 5 and 6 when that picture there signifies Solomon looking at other gods and then finally they're taken out into the land of Babylon in exile. Now, 2 Kings chapter 5 actually focuses not on that kingdom of Judah that was taken away in exile, but the northern part of Israel. And as a side note, I just wanted to say, how good has it been to get our head around the Bible like that in the last few weeks, like to, to look at the big story of this? So I hope that you're understanding where we're talking about, about in the whole story here. But... <coughs> what we can tell in this passage is that it's on its way to destruction. The, the story is actually focusing on a foreign commander from a different nation. He's from Syria. This guy would have no concept of the God of Israel. And as the commander of the foreign army, it actually starts off by telling us that the Lord had given him great victory. Verse 1 of this passage says that God had given victory to the uh, army of Syria to come and crush Israel, his own people. It's a bit of a strange part of the, of the whole Bible, of the sto- story of the Bible. Now, while this book and chapter record this time before the exile, the book of Kings, or 1 and 2 Kings, was actually compiled during the time of the exile. So there you go. This stuff happens back before the exile, but it's not written down or recorded in this way until after the exile. And that means that this book, and in, in particular this chapter, is actually part of the Bible written to, to give encouragement to the people that are exiled to know how to live, how to keep on retaining their identity as God's people as they themselves were foreigners and exiles. They were people living away from God's people and people who belonged to another kingdom. A lot like us according to what Peter tells us. And so in this story, 
we meet this slave girl. Let's go to verse 2 of chapter 5. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. So they'd taken her, brought her back to Syria, and there she served Naaman's wife. See, caught up in all this conflict, destruction, and judgment is this slave girl, an Israelite. Imagine what that would have been like, to be vulnerable in that kind of way, that you could just be picked up and forced to serve someone, your enemy even. How would your faith stack up in that situation? How would you handle that? How would Jesus' words to love your enemy or do good to those who persecute you, how would they sit in your heart at that time? And yet here we meet this young girl in the midst of destruction, taken away as a slave. Naaman, her captor and master, is pictured as a pretty important guy. He's the commander of the army. He's great in the sight of, the master, of his master. He's a valiant soldier, verse 1 tells us. But then, right at the end of that first verse, what does it tell us? He's got leprosy. So imagine again being that slave girl. Wouldn't you be thinking, oh, it's only a matter of time till this leprosy kills this guy and I can just maybe somehow plan my escape? Well, that's not where her head's at, is it? She's this example of just everyday, ordinary faithfulness. She knows who she is. She knows who God is. She knows that there is only one God and that that man doesn't in any way rule me. And so what does she do? She seeks out his healing. She's not the only one that's still faithful to God in Israel. The king didn't follow God. The nation had turned away from God. God was judging them by letting other nations have victory over them in battle. But God's prophet was back in Israel. Elijah, and we'll talk more about him in a bit, but let's have a look at verse 3. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. See, she actually sounds concerned, doesn't she? She uses that phrase, if only he knew. She wants him to know the power of her God. She believes in God's power to do the impossible for this guy. It makes us ask, do we believe that for our friends, our family, and our neighbours? Do we believe in the power of God to do for them what they need? What about your enemies? Do you believe the gospel is such good news that it is good news for everybody and anybody? That's where this springs from. It, it springs from caring less and less about yourself and your own situation and more about that other person. This guy, Naaman, he isn't a good, he isn't a good guy. He goes and captures little girls from other nations and treats them as slaves. He's not a good guy. It's a radical idea that grace would be extended to him. But grace is a radical idea. That God would give his own son and pay the price that we are owed to him. 
So how does Naaman respond? Well, pretty positively, doesn't he? He goes off to his king and tries to line it all up. Tries to line up that he would go down there and put on a bit of a display and somehow get a healing out of it. But he's in for a pretty sharp learning curve because God doesn't operate the way that this guy thinks. This letter of endorsement that he goes for is not what God needs to consider healing someone, as we'll see. So off Naaman goes. He trots down from Syria into Israel and seeks out the king. In verse 7, As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? He gets a pretty strong response, doesn't he? It's a bit tricky to explain why this is such a strong response here, but what has happened is that Naaman's king has assumed that the prophet and the king, Elisha and the king of Israel, would work pretty closely together. That was his assumption. The reality is Elisha the prophet and many of the prophets are actually there to speak judgment on the kings, to tell them they need to forget about the gods of the other nations, the power of the other nations, and come back to living under the rule of God themselves. And so the king of Israel thinks that the king of Aram is asking for him to do the healing, for him to show God's power. And more than that, the king of Israel actually is, is concerned. He tears his robes because showing that power would be a way to avoid conflict between the nations. He thinks that if he can't pull this off, that he is going to end up with another battle on his hands with Syria. Basically, Israel's king sees the whole thing as a big threat. And then Elisha catches wind of what has happened. Look at verse 8. He sends in his message, Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Naaman is going to meet God. It's just going to happen after he's humbled. But first, who is Elisha? You might not have heard of this guy very much. During this period of Israel's history, that is after Solomon and before the exile, there are two big prophets in what is known as the northern kingdom. They were Elijah and then Elisha. And we hear about Elijah a fair bit in the New Testament. Jesus, when he's transfigured, he's, he's one of the options for people who saying Jesus who Jesus was when Jesus says, who do you say I am? When Jesus is on the cross, someone remarks, look, he's calling on Elijah. He's a bit of a familiar Bible character. But Elijah famously never dies and he's taken up into heaven. It's just a couple of chapters before this one. Well, Elisha basically succeeds Elijah. And both of them are actually really godly guys who keep holding out the word of God among a nation that's just torn apart as it turns further and further away from God. And actually, both Elijah and Elisha are known for their miracles. The book of 1 and 2 Kings records that Elijah performed seven miracles. And then Elisha asks to do double that of God, and he actually does. In, in, verse, uh, in Elisha's life, he performs 14 miracles. 
that the Bible records. Elisha in chapter 4, just before this, he heals a boy from the dead and he feeds 100 people with 20 lives. Sorry, with 20 loaves of bread. So it's actually quite, um, there's some big parallels between these guys and Jesus. It's no wonder that when Peter says, oh, when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? What the crowds are saying, he might be Elijah that's come back to us. So when the slave girl says, if only my master would see the prophet in Samaria, it's actually like this guy Elisha's reputation precedes him. Like people have heard about this guy that is the man of God that's down there in this kingdom of Israel. And so we've got to ask the question, is Elisha going to heal him? Well, Elisha, I don't know whether you noticed this, but he doesn't come to see him. Elisha doesn't go and start to plead with God that God would heal him. He simply just sends this message. And the message is pretty straightforward. He says, go and wash yourself in the Jordan River, the presumably quite stinky Jordan River. Naaman is confused and he's angry. He, he asks the question, why did I come all this way? What good is that swamp going to do for me? It's almost like he's forgotten his great need, like the bits of flesh that's falling off his bones. Like, who knows if on his journey uh, home his arm would fall off or something. It doesn't fit his idea of just what should take place for God to heal him. Verse 1 in this chapter goes to great lengths to emphasise his importance, how, how much victory this guy had had. How could he be expected to require to do such a thing as go and jump in the Jordan River? It makes me wonder, actually, how we share the gospel with our friends who kind of like mostly seem to live good lives, like who seem to have lives that are pretty together. I know some friends, and I can think of friends of people in my gospel community group that they're just honest people. They work hard in their jobs. They seem to take good care of their kids. Now, we know that none of that stuff is going to save them, that because they're outside of God's kingdom, because they don't have faith in Jesus, they're not destined to be with God forever. But how do we actually reach out to them? The fundamental need we all have to be forgiven by God through Jesus can't be forgotten. And this shows us that it actually takes humility to receive that. So I think for our friends that are like this, we need to make sure that we are openly humble in front of them, in front of those friends and family who seem to have their lives together. What difference does Jesus make? What's the difference between me and them because of Jesus? This needs to really come into how we relate to them and how we see ourselves. We need to be on guard to not think that being good people and being Christian is actually the same thing. There's plenty of good people. I've got some good friends that care and love for their other friends and their family well. That's not the same as having your faith in Jesus to save you. And so we too need to be on guard that we don't live in a way that would confuse that. We need to demonstrate that humility in all our relationships. Well, 
Thank God for Naaman's servants who speak sense to him because they get him to jump into the river. They must really care for him too. Have a look at verse 13 and 14. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you, have, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Just like that. He's healed. Skin now like a baby. It's a miracle. And what an amazing illustration of the gospel. To be washed, to be clean. All our blemishes taken away. Once Naaman accepted healing on God's terms, he was healed. We have to remember that. Our being healed of our sin only comes to us on God's terms. The blood of Jesus. The cross of Jesus. It can sound just as weird to us as jumping in the murky waters of the Jordan River sounded to Naaman. And it certainly does to the rest of our community. But if we don't accept it on his terms, we will miss out. Repent is the cry of the gospel. Humble yourself. Turn away from that life that is without God and turn away to become a Christian and spend the rest of your life turning away from those things. It's glorious news because it's actually turning away from what will destroy you, what will eat away at you, like leprosy eats away at the skin. Sin eats away at our soul. It separates us from God. But in that call to repent, we're called to turn to the living God who loves us, who loves you, who will restore you and recreate you to be who you were truly made to be. Look at verse 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Naaman goes back and shows himself to Elijah. And that's actually a thing that the Hebrew law requires him to do. And he declares, There is no God in all the world except in Israel. So think about this. Stemming from one little girl's act of love and kindness and faith, now this man, who was not only suffering leprosy, but was outside of God's kingdom and had no way of knowing him, now stands at peace with God. It's remarkable. Now the next thing we learn is that Naaman is stunned by God's grace. See, he wants to pay for what's happened to him. It's a pretty natural response. But there's nothing that he can give in return, is there? That is, except to worship him. And that's actually what verses 17 and 19 to 19 are about. When he realizes that he can't give anything to pay for his healing, what he does is he kind of essentially hooks up his six by four trailer and asks for a few cubic meters of dirt from the land of Israel. And what does he want that for? Well, he wants to take it and build a new altar on which to now worship God back in his land of Syria. He vows here that he will no longer worship the false gods and the idols of his nation, 
but he instead knows where his worship will be directed. Now, that's how it works. Forget the sacrificial systems and burnt offerings because that's not how we worship. But remember that the only thing we can do in response to what Jesus has done for us is to devote our lives back to him daily as an act of worship. And when you marry that idea to what I was saying before about the restoration that comes through living that ongoing life of repentance... That's where the joy of Christian life actually rests. Giving our lives daily to God out of worship and constantly turning away from the things of this world to the cross of Jesus that saves us. Notice how this whole saga is actually expected to work to work of worldly principles of power and yet God just bypasses and humbles all that. See, that's not how God works. And, and because, yes, it's true that God ultimately holds all the power, but also isn't corrupted by his being all-powerful. See, God's nature is love and to love us. And his power is seen in his love. And so we've got to ask, and I want to ask you, are you in a place with your walk with Jesus right now that reflects that. That is, you understand that life doesn't work by the world's principles. Or are you like Naaman was, thinking that the gospel somehow works on these worldly principles? Sometimes I've needed to really think through that and it's been a real rebuke to me. But listen to how Elisha speaks to that. Elisha tells Naaman, go in peace. Let those things go and discover the joy of your life in Jesus. It's there. And so just quickly to this last part of the passage, to this character of Gehazi, or I don't know how to say his name, I almost thought to skip this part, but it actually rounds out the story, and so it must be significant, otherwise it wouldn't be in the Bible, would it? One of Elisha's offsiders chases Naaman down on, on his way home and tries to get a bit of the loot that Naaman was offering. He actually reminds me a lot of Judas, Jesus' disciple, who just wants to cash in on what Jesus has done or Jesus is doing. So what happens? Well, this guy Gehazi catches up to Naaman. He lies to him. He asks for what is 68 kilograms of silver and a couple of sets of really fancy clothes, which is actually only a fraction of what was on offer. But then he gets it, takes it home, and he hides it. Elisha confronts him and basically curses him that he will now become the leper that Naaman was. And that's the end of the chapter of the story about Naaman. It's a pretty big warning. If we don't get off the worldly principles and understand the God that we have a relationship with, we're still stuck in our sin and it will eat away at us. Here's one quite specific application that I thought of. How do we actually see the salvation of other people? We try to steer our church 
to being outward focused, to be looking into our community, to reaching people. That's what's motivated us to go um, and make changes with our buildings and where we meet and those kind of things. Gehazi saw the salvation of Naaman just in economic terms, hey. He wanted to cash in on it. We decided to act on our church growth immediately to maintain our growth and to keep growing. We want to go and meet at the school, not because it's heated, which will be nice, but because there's room for more people to gather and grow and and come to understand the, the love of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus. We want to see that. So much of what we have felt has stopped us in the past is money and building resources, isn't it? Now, there's a principle that we've discussed in different meetings about what we do, and it's wise and true that says the more our church grows, one of the byproducts or the side consequences is that we can raise more money through our giving. And therefore, more giving allows us to build things and employ more people. It's both true and it's wise and it's good. But it's a byproduct, that's not a motive. We don't want to grow our church so that we can maintain our buildings or turn it into something a bit more modern. We want to grow our church because we want people who have the disease of sin to come to the true doctor where they can find healing. I sometimes hate the idea of moving to the school. And sometimes I love it. But I want to have the attitude that Elisha had. That healing comes from God. And that people need to be healed. And I'm going to focus on, on God and what he's doing the best that I can. So can you just, on that note, pray for our committee of management and the elders and who, everyone that's steering this, this move, this change, that we wouldn't see people as resources to cash in on. Because there's a temptation there for that to happen. That's the warning that I can see from this guy, Gehazi. But finally, just compare Gehazi to the slave girl that we start the story out with. Here you have the servant of the prophet Elisha in the kingdom of Israel, and he's corrupted by the power and wealth around him. And then you have the slave girl captive in a foreign nation who is faithful to God and is sharing the truth of God to those around her, to those who hold her life and death in in their hands. Don't think that you need some right set of conditions to be doing God's mission, to be living the way that God calls you to live. Don't think we need everything worked out. We are people called out of darkness into his light. We are to be the light in this world. And light shines brightest in the darkness. The more our you know, our nation goes to pot, the brighter we can shine if only we will remain faithful. We are the aliens and the strangers. Peter goes on to write, Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cosy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Instead, live an exemplary life among the natives or the pagans in the NIV. 
so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join the celebration when he arrives. Let's pray to that end. As we pray now, I'm just going to lead us through some of the points that I've raised and I want to invite you to silently pray for these things in your own heart. Our loving and heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for the encouragement of your word written down, written to a people that were living as foreigners and exiles. Lord, we thank you for raising up prophets like Elisha and for their holding your word out, your word of life. Lord, we thank you for girls like that girl that was bold enough to extend grace to her captor, to her slave master. Pray that we might be like that. Lord, we thank you for Naaman and for the way that you humbled him and the way that he received your grace and mercy. And Lord, we just take a moment now to reflect on our own healing through Jesus and give you thanks for it. And Father, we just want to acknowledge our own tendency to trust the world's way over your way. Lord, we want to acknowledge our temptation to be like Gehazi. And Lord, we pray for our friends who we struggle sometimes to see their need for Jesus. Lord, we pray that in your grace you would humble us. You would humble those around us. Lord, that we might live lives of repentance. Lord, and freedom. That we might know the joy of forgiveness. That we might live lives that go in peace. And Lord, we pray that we might be seeing happening amongst our community what Peter writes about. That we might be people not living like this world is our only home. But that we might be truly living that good life that shines your light. And that we might see people being won over to your kingdom through our humble witness. And we can only do that with your spirit. We can't do that by ourselves. But you can do that through us. And so, Lord, we pray to that end. In Jesus' name. Amen.